0: All right, so, viewers, we've got a tragic tale here of Brandon Embry, and Sarah is going to tell you what happened to her son, the whole story, the background. And, you know, for the viewers, I just need to give you a caution that it is harrowing, and, um, but it's an important story that needs to be told because there's a mystery as to what exactly has happened here. A young man has tragically lost his life. And so a huge thank you for coming on and being brave enough to tell us about this.
1: Okay, so this was September 12th of 2019 and I had been trying to get a hold of my son for a few days and I wasn't getting him on the phone. I was checking his find my location to see where he was, like if he was out or something like that. And so I end up driving over to his apartment, and I have a sister with me. And it was about, um, probably about 2 45 to 3 30 in the afternoon. And I'm banging on the doors, I'm knocking on the windows. I go around to the back. His bedroom window was broken, um, just like it's a double-paned window. So the outside pane was broken. I'm knocking on the back door, he had a front and back door. Um, There's no answer. And I end up calling 911. They call the, they have me call the property manager to have her bring over a key and they unlock the door. They go in. We were not allowed to go in and they, you know, they were in there working on him. We didn't know what had happened. They bring him out on the gurney. They have him, um, with a sheet pulled up. So we really didn't see like the state of his body or anything. They haven't like on the oxygen and they pulled me away. So I really didn't get to go up to him or talk to him or anything. They pulled me away to ask questions. So I just could kind of see a little bit from afar. They take him to the nearest hospital, which is only a mile away and it's hours, hours go by and we have no idea what has happened. um, Why, You know, we just have no clue of what's going on. And then two detectives from Asheville Police Department come up to my daughter and I in the waiting room and start asking questions about Brandon. And, you know, just this, like, Brandon was a super nice guy. He wasn't the kind of person to have problems with anyone. He was a working man. He was never in trouble. Um, you know, he, he didn't know like kind of the wrong sort of people, you know, nothing that would fit, like it just didn't make sense. Well, I was concerned because I had got some text from his phone that I didn't really think too much of it at first. I always described Brandon as kind of a, like an Eeyore personality from Winnie the Pooh. Like he could be kind of the the glass is half empty. Uh, so the texts weren't really alarming to me, but looking back, they were kind of made to insinuate some kind of hopelessness. And Brennan had been let go from his job just a few days prior. So, you know, of course my mind thinks, okay, did he, you know, was he suffering from something? Was this some kind of self-inflicted thing? But then we saw his body, you know, we saw him, in the ER. And then I was like, okay, now this really doesn't make sense. My son was bruised from the top of his head to the soles of his feet all over his body front and back. And we honestly didn't even see all of the bruising because he was under the blankets. They had him in a bear hugger because he had hypothermia. Um, His face was just like swollen twice its size. There was dried blood all over his face. Both of his eyes were black. And it was just, it was, you know, just kind of shocking. I think I was just in shock and I'm like, okay, so nothing is really making sense. And one of the things that really, like my mind kept flashing back to was they intubated him But only seven months prior, Brandon had been in the ICU in a different hospital, intubated, and we never knew why. We never knew what had happened. And he had been in the ICU for five days and they never had a diagnosis. And and then he pulled through that time. So, you know, I'm hearing what they're saying. They kept saying he's very sick and they use the word sick instead of critical but the emergency doctor was trying to let us know that the prognosis was not good they were gonna life flight him to the hospital that he had been to the first time but for some reason they didn't they changed it and i think you know honestly i think now the reason why they didn't life flight him is that the detective had asked me for his birthday. They hadn't found his wallet yet. And I think they were looking for his license. And I think possibly they found out that he was no longer an organ donor. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the reasons that he wasn't life lighted. So then they transported him to a different hospital, which was Moses Cone. He survived for 29 hours on three forms of life support. Mm-hmm. And the blessing in that is that there was, I mean, there really wasn't a medical explanation for what happened, but there are a lot of medical notes between the two hospitals and a lot of like source documentation to go back through and say, wow, none of this makes sense at all.
2: And that's what I was gonna say, if we could go back to, cause uh, Brandon was actually um a Navy veteran, wasn't he? Yes Which led into moving home to then meeting someone. Are we able to start back um at him obviously
0: leaving the Navy there? Sure. Could, could, uh, could you Brandon... actually go, go could you actually go even further back than that, Sarah? <laughs> sure. And just tell us more about, you know, him him before that and what led to the Navy?
1: Yes. Uh, Brandon um Brennan was a really smart kid. He was just always just a really, really brilliant kid. He was quiet. He was introverted. Um, but when you had those conversations with him, they were always very like heart to heart and good quality conversations. Um, I always tell people that's probably the thing that I miss most is being able to talk to him. Um He was, he was just like a good kid. I just really never had like any trouble with the boys. You know, they, they love their video games. They always love video games. I remember Brandon being very little and just going in depth about these video games. And I would just be like, it was over my head. And, um, but he loved those. Um, he graduated high school and, um, he decided to join the Navy. I had also been in the Navy, so he knew a little bit about it. I uh, once took him on the day where you bring your kids to work day, and he he got to go where I worked and meet my commander and people I worked with and and stuff like that. But um, he was accepted into the Navy nuclear program, and it's a very competitive program. You have to be smart to get into that program. Um, he was a machinist mate. Uh, he was stationed at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. He worked directly on the nuclear reactor. Um, we actually took a vacation to Hawaii and got to go out there and see him and be with him for a little bit. He got out. He uh, We all lived in Washington State when he got out. But the recession that hit in 2008, really affected my husband's work. And so we ended up moving East Coast. Brandon was still out there. He was in school. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of like, life events, like life happens. He, he had a girlfriend that um, just the, I think they were together for about a year. And that ended up um they broke up and then he had another girlfriend and that must have been very traumatic because this girl she stole his car, she stole his credit card, she stole his computer. I mean, she really put him through it. And um you know, just as a mom, I just had that feeling like, you know, well, hey, why don't you come out here, move near us so we can be near you. We'll be here for you. The cost of living from Seattle to Asheville, North Carolina, is way different. Um, I just thought it, you know, might be good for him to be close to us. So he moved out here at the end of summer in 2018. Uh, he got the apartment in Asheville, and it was about a year later when I'm knocking on his door in that apartment.
0: How often did you visit him?
1: Um, This is going to sound odd, but I did not like it over there. There was something about it. Um, So when he first got here, he lived with us and it was mostly like, it's only 15 minutes away. So very close by. So he would come over here quite often he would come see his brother um our whole family had basically like moved here they they ended up going back to Seattle my husband was just kind of back and forth to Seattle but um he would come over quite a bit his sister would go over to his apartment and I just always had this really bad feeling and I was always like don't go outside alone make sure you keep that door locked um if you like you know, don't take out the trash, nothing. Cause she would go over there and try to help my son like clean up and different things like that. Um And I don't know, I just, there was something about it, you know, but I did go over to his apartment Um when he got this job with transbotics in Charlotte, he then planned to move. He wanted to, because it's about an hour and a half from, Ashford to Charlotte and he was commuting back and forth. That's three hours of driving. So he was planning to move closer to that job. So I had been over to his apartment quite a bit to help him pack. And so at that point, you know, I had been to his apartment, but, you know, even he asked me if, um, if I would want to come over while he was at work and get the rest of the packing done. And I was like, I don't feel comfortable being over here by myself. I, there was just something about it. And honestly, like now, I could go over there and I don't get that feeling. It, it's just a super weird thing.
0: Was it, was it the people that you saw there? Was it the area? Was it... I think it what?
1: was the area. It just, it is a very expansive apartment. Um, I don't know. I just, I, you know, it was just a feeling, an uneasiness, and I can't really... Explain it when I would go there. It's mostly families, it's mostly families with children. Um, Brandon had a two bedroom, two bathroom apartment, Um, so the apartments were set up for families. Um, I would always speak with his neighbor that lived right beside him, you know. So everyone was friendly and nice, and I just can't explain it. It was just a feeling of uneasiness. I didn't like going over there. I wanted my daughter to be able to hang out with her brother, but there was just something about it.
2: Calling mother's instinct. My next question yeah. is, when did you start to notice things weren't quite right?
1: Um, well, I would say that there was a lot that was unknown to me, um, you know, like as far as Brandon had met some females on dating sites. And, you know, if it's just like, a date or a hookup. I just really didn't want to, you know, hear about that. Of course, I want to hear if if he's met someone or if there's someone serious. And he never talked to me about any of these females in his life, but he would talk to his sister about that. So there was a lot that was unknown. Um, And, you know, I do know from being there and packing up his apartment i do kind of know the state that everything was left in and where the boxes where i be i packed those boxes myself um but you know going back to that time that he was in the icu um that was just never explained and i said brian i think you need to get a lawyer i think you need to you know have this looked into because you know you were intubated almost a week and you have no reason of why it just didn't make sense and he did see he did see an attorney but they were more of the mindset that they were looking for cases where the person had died which is very eerie because then brandon does end up dying you know yeah um what what
0: what was his health his mental state and physical health in the summer of 2018
1: Uh, When he first got here in 2018, he was good. He was, you know, I think he was really glad to be near family. Um, He loved the dogs. He was always great with the animals. He was, um, you know, he was always the person that I would ask to dog sit for me. Um, He was just really good with them. He, you know, he was in a new place. So he was wanting to meet people, make friends. Um you know, which I commend him because he was a more introverted person. So that was probably a little bit harder for him. But he would get out there and, you know, as a 30-year-old man, he would go to, um, you know, the local pub and hang out and, and try to meet people. And he did. He met, you know, he met a few people. Um, but he did a lot of working. I think he spent a lot of his time at work, one of the first jobs that he had, he worked for a welding company that was like a temporary, but then when he accepted like a like a career position, he was actually traveling from North Carolina to Texas. So there was a, a lot where we didn't see him because it would be two weeks on, two weeks off. So, you know, we would just kind of see him in between. Um, And honestly, like that year, it just, in some ways, it seemed like it went by really fast, but his, his health, um, you know, it started with the ICU, which was really odd, but I just didn't put it together. Then about two months later, he called and he said that his work insisted that he go to the ER and he said he was fine. They just thought that maybe he was sick. And I think... What was going on with his health was also affecting his like short term memory that he was falling unconscious, but I don't think he really realized everything that was happening. So it was more when I go back, you know, after he's passed away, I I, um, request all of these health records and I'm just like reading through everything. And the account was a little more specific, like he was falling unconscious at work. And when I talked to him, when I picked him up, and that was April, um, it was more like he said that he wasn't feeling well, and they made him go get checked out. Like he, I don't even think he remembered blacking out. No, because that was
2: it. I was seen in one of your previous interviews that he started blacking out at work, if I'm correct. Yes. Yes, and yeah. so is that the first time he ended up in ICU? Uh,
1: February was the first time he was in. ICU. And that was for five days that he was in the hospital. Two months later, then he was at a different job. And he, and this one was in Ashboro, and he starts blacking out at work. And apparently I think he fell. And then they got him to sit in a chair and he fell unconscious again. And they called an ambulance and they took him to the ER. Um, But it was like he just didn't have a full account of everything that was happening. So this is now two times that he was falling unconscious, um, two months apart. Then another two months pass by, he goes to urgent care. And he's complaining of headaches, severe stomach issues, nausea, vomiting. They test him for Lyme disease. Um trying to figure out like really no answers. There were just no answers of what was going on. Then in August, I get text from his phone that he's throwing up for two days um, that he's very ill. But one of the issues is I later find out that they are like texting from his phone. so it's hard for me to verify okay, what actually happened here. And I want to say the August 17th, I'm getting these messages that he's just extremely ill. But then I go through the bank records and I'm like, well, there's a bank transaction in Charlotte. So that's two hours away. So now this doesn't make sense. Now I knew, I do know sometimes bank transactions can be delayed, but As you can see, like when you say mystery and a lot of confusion, it is, it's it's very hard like going back and putting these pieces together and who these characters are and what they were up to.
0: So prior to 2018, what were his health records, his medical records?
1: Brandon was someone who hated to be sick. So I will say that something that most of us, like you and I might go get some over-the-counter medicine Brandon would be someone to go to the doctor, go to the ER. Like I actually found like he had a upper respiratory, like, you know, just kind of run of the mill thing. And he went to the ER and they, they basically give him some over the counter medication. He was very concerned about his health. So that's why when they try to tell me later on that he died of pneumonia and I'm like, No, like, you know, there's no way that he didn't go to the doctor, that he didn't go get checked out. Brandon was always concerned with his health. He was one to go to the doctor if something came up. He was um, actually taking classes for the, I never get this correct, but basically to be a personal trainer, the NASAM he was into bodybuilding, weightlifting. I mean, to the point where he would record his meals and the weights that he lifted and just very serious about those things. He would cook for himself. I mean, the man ate liver on his own choice without being forced. So I'm like, that's someone that cares about their health to, to do that. Um, but he he was concerned about his health and, you know, this, this just didn't fit. And it was only really later, like looking back that I can put these pieces together. Um, I, I do remember that when I was helping him pack up, he complained of feeling tired all the time. He said he just felt so tired. And when, um, he came over, I called him one day and I asked him to move something. It was very heavy, but I noticed he was kind of struggling with that. And I thought, gosh, you know, he's so strong. Brandon is so, so strong uh, with all that, you know, weightlifting and everything um, that I thought that was kind of odd that he seemed to struggle like moving. It was a, a large toolbox. And I just thought, Oh, why is he struggling so much to, to move that? But you know, these these are like little things that I didn't put together until after.
0: Can you tell us about the Russian? For the purposes of YouTube, it's probably best that we don't use her name. Okay. Um, but if, if you tell us how the Russian came into his life.
1: Okay. So my husband and I had went to celebrate our anniversary. And my son was hanging out with his sister. And this was about... Um about 10 days before he went in the ICU. And he told his sister that he was seeing a girl and she was from Russia, but he didn't think it was gonna work out because she said she was going back to that country. And I, you know, but he had never mentioned her to me. And um, she is definitely not from Russia. She doesn't have a Russian name. We looked into her, um, she's from Maine and I think she was born and raised there. And I just, I don't know, like she, so I ended up talking to her after my son died and I was in communication with her for 10 months and we would talk for hours on the phone. We would text and I just immediately had felt like, you know, she had a lot of information and I wanted to know. Um, But a lot of what she said just seemed so outrageous that I thought, okay, she's a compulsive liar. Um, Could you give us an example? um, So she told me that her parents were in prison, that her father was in prison in Russia. And she would talk about these long things about these people being in prison And, um, she told me that she had a black belt, but not just in one martial arts in several, like she named like, you know, five, like Muay Thai, karate, like all these different things. And I thought, "Mm, there's no way because you would have to be dedicating your life to be at the level that she was saying. Um, so it just, everything just seemed so outrageous about what she was saying. But at the same time, there were these little shreds of truth. So it wasn't just like I, it wasn't like I just felt like I was talking to someone who was like bipolar or something, like just talking out of their head, because there were these little pieces of truth. And it's later on, as like, I mean, this took years of looking into her, and I find out more and more of all this outrageous stuff that she was saying, of how much truth there was to it. She did have a black belt. She just didn't have it to the level of what she embellished. So she's telling me about her father being in prison. Well, you know, I've seen at that point, I've already seen her father's Facebook and you know he he's a working person he like he's a, he's not in prison so i thought oh, that's so strange but then i find out that she is connected to these different prisoners and has these relationships and considered herself married although she's already married and she was married while she was seeing my son she is connected to some very bad people in prison
2: so what do you think the intentions were between the Russian fantasists and your son?
1: Um, I'm really not sure. But um, so for the longest time, I had my son's phone. When they closed his case, they gave me back some of the pieces. The detective destroyed a lot of anything with the DNA. She had that destroyed from his case. But I did get his phone back. And I waited for a long time because I thought, you know, somebody's going to do the right thing and they're going to reopen this case and they are going to need that phone. Time went on and on and I realized no matter what was presented to this police department, they were not going to open this case. And so I end up taking his phone to a private investigation agency and they were able to extract the data from the phone. The phone's still locked. But they were able to extract data. And there is like a quarter of a million to half a million files from that phone of data. It is, it's a lot. So I'm going through this phone and I find these WhatsApp, like um, the, the application for WhatsApp. And it's all in Russian. And there's these directions in Russian and all this stuff. And then I flash back to this female saying she was Russian. And so I was like, wow. And it wasn't just um, with my son, but I noticed in text to her husband, she would be talking and she would say stuff like, oh, it must be Russian interference. I mean it's just really strange stuff. So I would say there's something more there. What it is, I'm not really sure.
0: And her husband got sick. Yes.
1: Her husband, um, you know, for the longest time I never reached out to him or anything because I didn't know if he was involved, you know, it's, she was a married woman. So could that have been, you know, a love triangle or, you know, something like that. I, I just didn't know. And I, uh, a mutual friend ended up connecting me and I was able to talk to him and I, I could just tell when I had that conversation, that it was like the light bulb started going off for him because he had been very sick and a lot of his symptoms were the same as my son's and in fact at the same time that you know my son was dying he was also complaining of being sick and he had also blacked out uh, driving home from work and this is a man that has worked at the same company for 20 years he's used to the schedule there was no reason for this out of the blue and he said like he had ran off the road um just basically falling unconscious while driving home
2: so we've got this this woman who her husband became incredibly sick she meets your son he goes into ICU for the first time after he meets her were yes. in then? And then you meet her at a party and she's still around up until his death, I take it. Were there any other suspicious events leading up to it?
1: Um, from what I can tell, at one point she's texting her husband about finally talking to the police And she said that the police asked her if there were reasons why they went for long periods of time without talking. And she presented it to her husband as they were a group of friends. And she called my son, Sean, my son's name is Brandon, but there's all these texts where she's talking to her her husband about Sean, but it's also a group. And, you know, we learned there was a second female that my son was talking to and she was from Virginia. So it was like, you know, at first we thought these were two separate females, but at these things that she was saying in her text that the police asked her if she was jealous of this other female. And she said, no, why would I be jealous? She's my best friend. So now we're like, okay, they're all involved. Like what is really, you know, what was this about? And I mean, there's so much on my son's phone. I didn't know, a, you know, an iPhone could contain this much data. It's it's really extraordinary. Um, so really, I'm still trying to piece this together, but there's stuff on his phone that just shouldn't be there. There's stuff, he had an iPhone. He's always had an iPhone. There's Android stuff on his phone. There's stuff that's, documents going out to all these different countries uh you know people thought it was a vpn it's not a vpn it's there's stuff about all these like languages and translating it's like it's really weird i don't understand why that police department really didn't hand his case over to another authority because from the stuff that i see i think it should have been sorry
0: did the Russian stand to benefit in any way from these illnesses of your son and her husband?
1: Well, I, I really don't even know if I should bring this up because I just feel like it's so out there. And honestly, when someone approached me with this, I was like, this is conspiracy theory stuff. There's no way. But now I'm not so sure. But I had a nurse contact me and she said you need to check into organ and I was like oh that you know that doesn't happen here in the US that kind of thing um but for a person to have their organs taken they need to basically be in a coma, toast state. And if they were drugging my son, poisoning him with just enough antifreeze, just enough Benadryl, he's in a coma, you know, there's the potential. Because I was like, why does he keep getting sick? Why does he keep going into the hospital if they were trying to kill him to get something from him? Why would they not just kill him? Why did this keep happening over and over again? So I really think that's something on the table that has to be looked into. I mean, I know it sounds out there, but there's a lot, you know, the, the my son, there was a lot of water and the water, I looked this up, the water that was from the apartment, um, A hypothermic state is actually preferential for preserving organs. There was water everywhere, like leaking out. The reason why that is significant is I will later read phone messages where the girl that claimed to be from Russia had taken off from living in South Carolina out to Colorado. She said that she was on a job. It was her anniversary with her husband and she's calling him freaking out because she can't get the water in the bathroom turned off and it's up to her knees. Now, this is a situation that ends up years later, similar to what's going on with my son.
2: So what was the his apartment like um, after, obviously, they carried him off to ICU? Oh. I, I remember reading it. It was
1: an absolute state. Brennan's apartment, so this is something the police had asked me because we didn't go in. And they said, you know, they, they came out and they were like, is it always messy like this? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, he's, he's kind of messy. So, you know, not seeing what they saw, I'm just thinking they're talking about, you know, the laundries on the sofa, just different things like that. Later, it's a year later where I see the crime scene photos. And that's when I saw his apartment, all of those boxes that I packed, not all of them, but a good majority of those boxes were dumped out. His apartment was ransacked. His bedroom, there was just like a pile where the boxes had been dumped out like knee high. Um, And the spare room stuff was dumped. I had everything packed in the spare room that was dumped out. There was a carpet cleaner there. There was no carpet in this apartment. There was no need for a carpet cleaner to be out. I packed that room and that carpet cleaner was set on top of everything in that closet. And I'm like, okay, I know that I didn't, I would never put that carpet cleaner on top of those items like that. And You know, one thing about a carpet cleaner, even though there was no carpet, it can soak up water. It can be used to soak up water to clean up. Um, But there was later a message that this female sent to her husband where she talks about three people having my son's clothes. And she named the items. And I think possibly... Some of the boxes were dumped out for them to look for clothes. Perhaps they were wet and bloody from being in his apartment. And they picked out some of his clothes and put his clothes on. The female from Virginia told me that she barely knew Brandon, that she had only met him once, but she had his shirt if I would like to have it back. And I thought, you know, who meets someone one time? says that they barely know them, but they have their shirt.
2: There was also some in- injuries sustained that are quite questionable. One that you believe on his skull could have been yeah. obtained from a metal rod that was found later in the apartment.
1: Yes, the police, you see them in the crime scene photo. They take a metal rod. It has blood on it. They take that in to evidence along with... Um, a few other like tools and different things. Um, trying to think of what the the type of hammer is called. Um, this escapes me right at the moment, but they also had taken that into evidence. And there were several signs of skull fracture that my son had. I mean, the right side of his head was completely swollen out. You can see that on the CT scan. Um, he had... Fluid in his mastoid process, that shouldn't have been there. A sign of skull fracture is bruising behind the ear. They call that battle sign. He had that, uh, which was listed in the search warrant. Um, the um, They call it bilateral periorbital ecchymosis, which is just basically the raccoon eyes. And the first person to tell me that was the private investigator who had know worked for a sheriff's department for a long time and he said when you see that they need to be looking for skull fracture that is a huge indicator of skull fracture and i just feel like even with the hospital um the person that looked at his ct scan was someone who usually looks at mammograms not head injury so it wasn't really like a specialist and it was like probably less than fifteen minutes from the time that the scan was completed until the doctor had transcribed. And you've got to think, you know, they're they've got to walk there, they've got to look at the scans, and they've transcribing. So I feel like, you know, I just I just wish someone would go back over those and work more closely. Um, and also, for if you look through the photos. My son's head is always tilted, even in the autopsy photos, his head is always tilted to the side. And even one of the detectives mentioned, why could he not get up off of that floor? Even if he had pneumonia, why could he not walk out the door to get help or call someone on the phone? He couldn't move. He laid there on the floor and he couldn't move.
2: So do you believe these uh, the girl in particular was present at the time of his um, obviously when he went into a coma and they were perhaps ransacking the place or something along them lines? Yes,
1: I think I think his place was ransacked. I think that they took his clothes out of the boxes. Um, she has signs of psychopathy where you know you see these people that are involved in a homicide and they will drop little clues and things like that. She kept telling me, did you find his dog tags? Make sure the police look for his dog tags. Her husband later tells me that my son's dog tags were on her bed, that she had them all along, and she's telling me to make sure that I look for them. Um, In the phone data, so the ER doctor said that my son had laid on the floor for a matter of days without being able to move. And even with pneumonia, even with, you know, let's say there had been fever, but he was hypothermic. But even with that, a person is able to move around. But you can see from the blood that just dripped out of his head that, you know, he had laid there for a long time without being able to move. Now, at one point, this female is t- talking about her dream. Her in, she relays these dreams to me. And when she does, she's giving guilty knowledge. She's saying how in her dream, he was nude. He was laying, he was on it, wrapped up in a sheet by the closet. And see, I don't know all of this stuff again until I get the crime scene photo. And there's the sheet. The sheet had been under him. The police didn't tell me that. So I didn't know any of this until the crime scene photos. And he was by that closet. So she tells all this stuff through these dreams. And, you know, this is basically her just describing the whole crime scene. Um, The strange thing is there's blood all over the bed. But the sheets, the comforter is under the bed, soaked with water. And the sheet is under his body. And she talks about them moving him. And I don't know if they wrapped him up in the sheet to, like, move his body or, you know, what they had what else was planned? Like, were they interrupted? I don't know. But his phone was found on his bed. He's on the ground. The sheets and the comforter are removed. And the sheet is like all the way across the room. Now, I mentioned that I have dogs, like I've, my dogs can get rowdy, jump on the bed, jump off the bed. Even with them being rowdy and doing that, the sheets and the comforter don't, end up off of the bed like you know a fitted sheet on all four corners someone had to take that sheet off of there and that sheet was under my son his phone is on top of the bed and I only just and like you know realizing that that's where his phone was and they took his phone the detectives took his phone before they even took crime scene photos so that's why I didn't know where the phone was um, I go through the phone data. So, you know, now that like years have passed and I'm going through the phone data and his phone had connected to Wi-Fi about 12 hours before I show up at my son's apartment. So it's like someone had his phone and came back into his apartment 12 hours before I found him. And the ER doctor said that he had laid there for days and that blood had been there for days. So my son wasn't up walking around being on his phone. There's a Siri entry. You know, I need to have all of this analyzed because that's you know, I can only read and and kind of try to understand what I'm seeing. The Wi-Fi connection, that's definite. You know, I did see that it says it literally says last connected to Wi-Fi and then I have to convert the time, but this was 12 hours. Before he was found. And my son couldn't have walked. He couldn't have went somewhere and walked in. He was laying on that floor. Impossible.
0: So there's another character in this. We're not going to say her name. We'll just call it the female detective. What was her role?
1: This has been something else with this female detective. So, again, so much of my son's case is kind of going back and putting things together. And where a lot of this, you know, I just really kind of attributed to like, you know, I was asking myself, are these people really deft? Like, what is, you know, what is their major malfunction? Um, But then I go back and I start piecing all of this together with this female detective. And it is really obvious that from the start, she was sabotaging the investigation, So, pardon me, just a quick second. Um, So, one of the things was my son had a deep cut across his wrist. And again, I said my son was someone who would go to the doctor. There's no way that he would have this cut. Now, in the autopsy, they call this a superficial cut. But I've since learned everything is superficial unless it's detached with medical examiners. But for you and I, I mean, this this was deep. It's where you know, all of the skin was cut down to the layer of where you could see like the adipose tissue, like kind of coming out. Yeah, it was gnarly. And it was so bad that the male detective took a photo of that himself, like on his phone, which then he showed to my son. And the female detective was trying to tell him that that was an old cut, that it wasn't involved. And I'm like, there's no way someone would get a cut like that and not go get stitches um so I thought that was very strange I'm looking through the crime scene photos and where there is this large blood stain of my son's head where he had been laying the female detective puts a box on top of it and is standing on it and it's like okay you don't even know if your crime scene photos have come out you don't know if you're going to have to come back to that so it's almost like she was trying to soak it up or something I I I just feel like even a child would know not to do something like that. So I just found out recently that this female detective has only worked on two death investigations. Two. And she's been a detective for a long time. She went to the autopsy along with the criminal investigations person who took the crime scene photos. When we call her over to the apartment, the first, it was the main detective that was the lead on my son's case. And this female detective was supposed to be his partner. So she comes over as well. She comes in and she lets my husband and I know that she drove CID to the autopsy, but that's it. That's all she did was drive. And I don't know, it was just kind of an odd remark, but I later find out that that is not true because when I talk to the forensic pathologist, the only person that she mentions talking to is the female detective. And the male investigator that took the crime scene photos, his name is spelled wrong on the autopsy. Because I was like trying to find him for two years because I wanted to ask him about questions about the autopsy because the autopsy is just as bizarre as the investigation. I'm like, th- this stuff doesn't make sense. And I wanted to talk to him. And then I find, you know, they've, they've got the wrong name. I'm like how, how do you get the wrong name on an because autopsy? What if that had to go to court? And, you know, it's.
2: Because it, it got ruled as an accident. What was it? Self-inflicted death. um Humania. Pneumonia. And then the and self-inflicted wounds, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, how was it not opened as a homicide case? Pardon? How was it not opened as a homicide case?
1: The male detective who worked for the police department was investigating as a homicide. But he kind of seemed like a lone ranger With in this department. It was like everyone else seemed to want this closed and done with. I just felt like, you know, I, I couldn't understand. I'm talking to this female who says she's Russian on the phone. She's telling me all of this stuff. They found Benadryl in my son's system. She knew about that. I've got these things recorded. I'm sending it to the police department. I went into the police department to talk to them. Like, you know, this person sounds like a psychopath. There's too much here. There You know, I didn't have all the answers, but that's not my job. I'm not the police. I'm not the investigator, but there were enough red flags that most police departments would have been that this needs to be looked into. This person needs to be looked into. And I couldn't understand why they hadn't scooped her up, scooped up the other girl, had them come in early on for questioning. And I end up calling the police chief because I'm thinking like, okay, he needs to talk to his people because they're really dragging their feet They need to be looking into this. And he tells me, basically, people die and we have to move on. And I thought, you know, I'm not hearing anything about, like, we're going to make sure we check into this or, you know, nothing about the investigation. He's just at this early point. I don't even think the autopsy was back yet. I don't even think I had the results back yet. So neither did they. And he's telling me, I need to move on.
0: You see when there's a police cover-up, there's orders from up top. And often cases, there's some kind of intelligence interest. With what you said about the Russian imposter and these language communications and things, do you think that there was some kind of intelligence operation going on here?
1: I, well... It's hard for me to use the word intelligence with this police department, but definitely seeing some kind of cover-up. I don't really feel, I think they closed it. I do think there's a cover-up. How much they know, I'm not really sure of. Um, The male detective that was investigating, um, they did a search warrant on her phone and the results were supposed to come back and we never heard from him. They closed the case. Well, no, they moved the case from him to this partner, this female detective that had been kind of sabotaging it all along. They gave the case to her, who then will eventually close it. Um, He was supposedly moved from being a detective to traffic. But I don't don't know because I can't believe anything from this police department. I, I can't believe anything they say. Um, but I will tell you this, that Brandon, Brennan's phone was taken off of the bed on Thursday, the 12th, the day we found him. He died on the 13th. From what I can tell, by the 13th, the police are already looking at the data on his phone. I need this confirmed because I know there's remote hacking as well. So I, I do need to get that confirmed. But I know they have the technology that this police department would take the phone to the sheriff's department and have them look into the data. They did a search warrant on my son's phone where they get the, the phone detail and the data. The d- male detective told me there were 95 pages of data for a week. In a week, 95 pages of data for someone who had been at work. Like who could do this much on their phone? So, <clears throat> um, i'm going through the phone detail i want to say that i looked through november maybe october and november there are no files on my son's phone then i go into december this female is interviewed december 4th the following days and the data shows this that my son's phone the battery is being charged they plug in the phone and there is there are files that say to delete to purge where it looks like files are being deleted off of his phone while the phone is in police custody and when you look at the evidence log they don't keep a chain of custody on my son's phone so they're not accounting for who has it or where it's going. But the day after she was interviewed, his phone is being tampered with. And it's in police custody.
0: Wow.
2: So how did you go about getting the case reopened?
1: Um, I, Ashborough Police Department would never reopen this case. I don't care if I had a confession from this female and I don't think that they should be, I think, an outside agency at this point. I mean, we're, you know, I don't know for sure what the motive was. Um, one of the things, though, my son had about $10,000 in the bank and the bank sent a letter. So I didn't have the letter yet because they sent it to his address that it gets forwarded to me. But I later match up the date. This female sends me a message that she was really upset because someone took a whole bunch of money of hers out of the bank. But she wasn't talking about her bank. She was talking about my son's bank. So she was able to see the money in his account. So I I just think that's a piece of it. I think, you know, this took me a while too, to understand when someone is a victim, that there can be like multiple things going on that they look at the person as a commodity and all the ways that a person that they can make money off of a person like i I just really don't know what's going on with all of this but there is a lot of stuff on his phone and i think his phone tells a good part of the story
0: so sir what do you hope to achieve now and how can the viewers watching this help or support you
1: um You know, anyone that's understanding phone detail, that would be really helpful. Um, I'm sure I'll be paying for analysis, like professional phone analysis. And um, we're going to attempt to have his phone unlocked. I don't know if that could tell us anything more, but it is a more in-depth than just the extraction. Um, And, you know, honestly, I need to put all of this together and push it try to get it to the FBI see if they will look at it but this is I don't expect to gain anything from the police department at this point but I do think that the phone detail is where maybe some of the answers or at least more of the the motive can be found
0: and what's the best way for people to contact you
1: um you know any of the the best way is probably the Facebook just seems like an easier process. Um, There's a messenger portion, um, you know, that I can answer things through. Um, If I don't get back to people right away, I mean, it's just like, this, this is a lot. This is, you know, I've immersed myself in medical aspects. I've immersed myself in learning about autopsies, the things that they said, you know, going through every detail, going through medical reports. Now I'm going into phone forensics. So it's, you know, it's been a lot for me. At my age, I never thought I would be learning about all of this stuff. Um, but right now, that's the biggest thing. If if people know about um, phone analysis, that could be a big help. Um, you know, I did a lot of like, you know, trying to get people to help me look at the blood stain pattern analysis because I was like, I knew there's like what they call like they don't think they use this term anymore, but there's medium velocity blood spatter on those closet doors. And and it's like from low to the ground. You cannot lay on the ground and hit yourself hard enough because you don't have the momentum if you're laying down. So it's just preposterous that these people tried to say he did this to himself like the the scene tells a different story but once I got the phone detail I'm like that's it like that this is this proves he wasn't alone they were going in and out of his apartment and one of the biggest things that from the start that shows how this was messed up was that certain members of the police department were trying to say they were trying to make it like Brandon was a psychotic Navy veteran, a military veteran who barricaded himself in his apartment and was doing drugs and alcohol and went crazy, destroyed his apartment and beat himself. This, this was the narrative that they were pushing. And they said he was found in a locked apartment with no forced entry. And they even were telling this to the medical people that attended to him. So they're really pushing this narrative. Well, when I finally am seeing the crime scene photos and I see the photo of his keys, his door key is missing. And then also his sister sent me a text that his spare key went missing when he went to the ICU the first time. So two, both of his keys were missing. Mm. And they so never weird. tell the detail to anyone that someone, you know, obviously you don't need to force an entry if you're coming and going with the key. No.
2: Wow. It's suspicious.
0: All right. So we're going to have all your links uh, in the description box below this video. So if, if anyone's watching this, if you think you can help Sarah in any way possible, those links will be down there. Please contact the. He's 33 years old, this is just so, I can't imagine your pain and suffering, Sarah. It's, it's horrendous. But hopefully, you know, more information will come to light and you can get some closure on this.
1: And one of a big way to help is just to keep sharing his case, to follow his pages because it deserves answers. And I have learned that, you know, the the exposure, the people asking questions and knowing about this case is one of the ways to have an outside agency come in and investigate and see what happened here. Because if the police have their way, they want this quiet, closed, and no more talk about it. And I just don't want that to happen. So I appreciate you all talking to me and and covering his case. Well, thank huge you.
0: Thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, take care. So mm-hmm. viewers, please let us know in the comments what you thought about this. And like I said, Sarah's links are gonna be in the description box below the video. So please get in touch if you can help her in any way. Thanks for watching, cheers.